Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you stars our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Hmm. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Elia, and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is May 13, 2015, and tonight on New Abolitionist Radio, we mark the 30-year anniversary of the bombing of Osage Avenue in West Philadelphia. The raid killed six adults and five children, destroyed more than 60 homes, and left more than 250 people homeless. It stands as the only aerial bombing carried out by police on U.S. soil. Five myths about crime in black America and the statistical truths. Let's kill the black-on-black crime narrative. In his article, Immigrants for Sale, Scott Reed has uncovered communications between Abraham Lincoln and Alexander Hamilton Stevens. Let's listen to what he found. It seems to be very interesting. Mark, Marco Rubio, the U.S. Senator from the state of Florida and the current presidential candidate, is on the private prison profiteer's payroll. We'll tell you how. In our Ferguson is America series, tonight we show you that Delaware is Ferguson. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Kia Stewart, 27, exonerated April 13, 2015, after spending nearly 10 years of a life sentence behind bars for the killing of Bryant B.J. Craig Jr. Kia Stewart was able to walk out of the Orleans Parish Criminal Courthouse a free man. Our abolitionist in profile is William Henry Johnson, 1833 to 1918, a black abolitionist, politician, and crusader for the rights of blacks. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find archived podcasts at newabolitionistradio.blogspot.com, and we invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1-530-881-1400, access code Five four nine zero three two pound. Just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. Peace once more. I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Scotty? How you doing, Johanna? 
I'm not going to complain too much, Max, as I'm trying to get out of the habit of telling lies and saying everything's okay, I'm doing good, it's just fabulous, but I'm just surviving, man. I'm surviving and I'm doing better than most, certainly doing better than those who are on the prison plantation today. So with that said, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great, man. I count my blessings where I can find them. And you've gotten a few blessings that I know about recently, like the birth of your grandchild, man. That's amazing. Uh, like, a, you know, just like straight gift from God. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I try to count my blessings where I can because uh, they are rare sometimes. <laughs> What's up with you, Johanna? I, I hear you got a new name, Johnny Cool. <laughs> yeah. The same old, same old as i always been, man. Same old as i always been. I, um... Got that information from Facebook, <clears throat> threatening me if I didn't have a, a federal government ID that showed that I was actually on a birth certificate somewhere with the name Johanan, that I better go back to John Coolidge. So, wow. Just call me an abolitionist. I don't give a damn yeah. about the rest of them. Facebook, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. In your business. <laughs> anyway, you know, I also hear that you uh, attended the conference calls for the CCA's quarterly earnings report this uh recently? Um I listened in. They um they switched that up since the last quarter. We did the fourth quarter live on the Abolitionist Daily. Um uh, that was one of the first programs uh broadcast uh last month or well I guess it would be two what three months ago now. Three months ago, yeah. Um so that was the last one that I was actually able to hear live. We broadcast it live on the on the program. This one, they hit it. <laughs> it went down, and I knew the date, but they didn't have a link for the live listen. And then Sunday night, uh, about midnight, um, it popped up. They put it out there. So I don't know. I don't know if we affected that. I don't know. I believe so we many, have. Yeah, so sure. many things yeah. happened. That, yeah, it seems we, we've had some effect on and and they hid that one. They tried to sneak it in. Yeah, we continually attend their earnings reports with the GO group and CCA just as you know listening to what they're saying and predictions that they make that almost always come true even right. before you hear about it in political circuit circles they already have insider information which is one of the reasons why we're trying to get RICO charges against them yeah what it does show collusion between these CEOs and executive officers of these private prison companies and politicians Absolutely. Yeah, you could just look at the information about California or Florida or Arizona that was put out years before the actual laws or uh, circumstances came into play where they made these deals with states. So, yeah, that is advance notice for sure. Um, so what did you find out uh, in the, it's the first uh, quarter? What did you find out? Is it up as it always is? Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the latest one was from CCA. Geo Groups was about a week ago. <clears throat> we covered that um, on Abolitions Daily, for, you know, fairly well in depth. But yeah, of course, the uh, uh, first quarter of 2015 for CCA was another strong financial performance. Uh, $426 million in the first quarter, which is a 5.4% increase from the same year, same wow. period last year. Uh, mm -hmm. Total net operating income for the first quarter was $125.3 million, which is an increase of 7.3%. Uh, and generated uh, what they call normalized funds from operations of 0.68 cents per share um, or 68 cents per share in the first quarter, which is an increase of nearly 10%. So they've upped their productivity, they upped their net, and they upped their overall total revenue that they were able to draw in. So 
You know, it's all good to be an enslaver, man. It's all good right now. Yeah, when I first started here with Scotty, uh, they were at $1.3 billion in yeah. annual profit that they were talking about. And at that period of time, they said that their overhead was only $200 million, and yeah. they were being generous there, so all the rest was profit. Um, I, then I watched as they went up to $1.7 billion. I believe that was last year. So they're yeah. on a path to go to $2 billion in profit coming up uh, by two, the end of this year, I would suspect. Yeah, it's likely. It's likely that they will. And um, they're all in the same fight to get these uh, renewed <clears throat> ICE contracts, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, contracts. They're talking about they've got their uh, Truesdale-Turner Correctional Center in Tennessee, which is their first time going back into Tennessee, their home state, to um, to build and, and run a facility. So that's 2,552 beds. Uh, which we know is heads, obviously, um, that they'll be filling up in their own home state. So, I mean, that's, that's another 60, 70 million dollars, uh, 5,000 beds here, uh, 4,000 beds there. You know, it just all adds up, man. They threw another 500 beds in Arizona. Um, actually 1,500, two different uh, places, one 500 and a thousand and another. So, I mean, this is just the whole conversation. The whole one is 57 minutes long to call. And the whole conversation is just going on and on about adding bed space and, uh, adi- and additional contracts coming in. And um, as usual, the calls, the uh, questions rather at the end of the call from the investment houses are very telling because they want to not only get, you know, the report on last quarter, but they also want to get some projections for what's, go- you know, what's coming down the pipe. And they were asked about Proposition 47 and um, they took kind of a, kind of a negative tone you could hear the the mood kind of dropped a little bit because they were saying that they had been told that proposition 47 was only going to represent around 2,000 people being released due to the change in the laws but so far they've seen over 5,000 people that were released as a result of that so this may be some of the only honest reporting on you know on numbers of people that are affected by prop 47 the direct democracy agenda that was put out there by the people of California to decriminalize or defelonize uh low level drug offenses to to misdemeanors and uh which would help keep people out of the prisons. So a lot of good information in there. I'll put the I'll put the uh transcripts up on the uh, New Abolitions radio page so people can look through it for themselves also. Oh, I'm sure our listeners would appreciate that because uh, there are people like us out there that do a lot of research and and want to understand what's happening. But you know, it's it's really it's simple in a way. You know, they make these laws to criminalize, criminalize the people. They fill up the prisons to overflowing, and then they traffic them out to other states, which need to fill guaranteed occupancy contract obligations with these private prisons. And meanwhile, uh, they use all the influx of bodies they use to justify more cops, more prisons, and more prisoners. And on top of all that, the captured citizens, the slave labor supply commercial goods and services which are sold on the international market and you can top it all off with the ability for any private citizen of any nation to purchase prison stocks and jail bonds right here in the United States that reflects the ownership of human beings and those human beings are predominantly African Americans over one million over one million, uh, almost half of the prison population that we have today, and still only make thirteen percent of the population. It's just 
outrageous. Yeah. I don't understand how people can't see the simplicity of this. When you create prisons for profit, you create what? A demand for prisoners. Bizarre, man. It is bizarre. You got one million people, one million people of color, black folks in America, a country known. It's not like America wasn't built on slavery. We're not talking about it's a million black folks in Norway in prisons. Like, okay, that's odd. You know, like, how would they get there? What was they doing there? You know why black folks is in America, largely. I mean, come on. We know there's some immigrants. We know there's some black folks that was indigenous. I'm not talking about all those fringe conversations and theories or whatever don't play with me you know damn well what the majority of black folks in america how they got here at the end of the day and when you see a million of them locked up in prisons and then we show you clearly that it's modern day slavery corporations are entering into contracts with these prisons to put them to slave labor slave wages how is that not the greatest international cry for for justice on the planet itself, you got a million people. I remember last week we reported on a uh, RICO charges being levied against the prison systems right now, saying that they employ the largest number of illegal alien aliens in the United States is employed by these prisons because they're working them. They're bringing these yeah. thirty what is it thirty four thousand uh, uh, people mandated per day. It has to be in there. There were beds, you know. Yeah, 30,000 beds, yeah. And many of those, as we've seen in Wallace County, are employed, you know, where they had a prison built for 800, but had, what was it, 2,000 people in it, yeah. lived in tents and working every day. And they went on strike because of the conditions they had to live in with bugs biting them and no health care and busy working for the plantation day in and day out with no compensation. So, yeah. That's where we're at today in the United States of America. You know, I found some interesting things as well in my research over the years is that there's really no good number of the youth detention facilities and incarcerated youths in America. And I've also noticed as well that they keep telling us about how the prison population is declining, but the private prison population is increasing. So there's really no change other than an increase of overall prisoners. You may be losing less prisoners in the federal housing units, but they're simply shipping them off to private facilities. Right, right. That's been Holder's lie the whole time. That's been Eric Holder's lie for the last year that he's been talking about these federal numbers being down. You know, Now, it's convenient to say the federal numbers are going down and then also at that time quote how the uh, crime is down to try to to try to by association suggest that crime is down because there was so much incarceration and so much you know the war on crime and the war on drugs that's why crime is down but there's no evidence to show that the war on crime the war on drugs or even mass incarceration itself has had any positive effect at lowering crime crime was at an artificial spike in the early to mid 1980s as a result of the over in, introduction of drugs and through like the Iran Contra right by the government itself yeah um i read an article today i don't have it in front of me but it came out through bloomberg it's in my email it came um from one of my google alerts on hillary clinton and and, and uh prison slavery and in that um 
article that I read today, it was quoting Hillary Clinton and a portion, quoting a portion of the speech she gave on April, uh, when was it? April 29th. And she said that it has done nothing to lower crime. All of this mass incarceration has done nothing to lower crime. And, and what was kind of like, like, kind of like surreal to me, she gave this speech at Columbia University. Do I have to tell y'all what Columbia University does? They invest in private prisons. As a matter of fact, our allies and comrades at Columbia University have been, uh, lobbying for the divestment. Yeah, Columbia divest in order to have them, uh, take their money out of private prisons. There should be no connection between schools and prisons on a profitable level. That is just crazy. Yes, it is. And, and again, just because, I, I mean, the things that the government labels as crime, well, I don't label them as crime. I don't think possession of cannabis is a crime. I don't think using cannabis is a crime. I don't think smoking crack is a crime. It might be stupid, but is it a crime? Why, if you say yes, well, why is it a crime? Cause some, some white men and, and women and a few proxy racists in Congress said it was a crime? That people should be locked up for? Come on, if, people. If America was the rock, it would come out right now and say it just doesn't matter what you think. Because that's how they look at it. <laughs> yeah, it right. It doesn't matter what you think. We are going to do it regardless. Like it or not, it's in place. What you're going to do about it? Well, But how it affects the statistics, though, when they say, oh, this is a high poverty area, I mean, a high crime area. Well, I mean, if these are, are nonviolent victimless crimes, what makes them a crime? What makes it a crime? To me, for mm-hmm. a crime to happen, you have to have harmed someone else. Either through physical, you know, physically or by like harming them, like shooting them, beating them, raping them, killing them, obviously, or, or property crime where I'm stealing, I stole your car, broke into your house, stole your big screen TV and, and all that. To me, that, that's the only thing that constitutes a crime in my mind or should constitute a crime is where my actions have infringed upon the uh, uh, pursuit of, of happiness or the liberty of another individual. You know, I, I mean, it, it's just an oxymoron to even acknowledge that, you know, oh, a victimless crime. How in the hell is the crime if you don't have a victim? I think uh, the devil doesn't need an advocate, but just to be saying it, I would suspect that their argument would be it's a crime against the state by abusing drugs and causing even more chaos because they already have a war on drugs they're trying to end and we're not helping it by continuing to use and sell drugs. In 1972 when they created the DEA, um, a Democratic Congress worked with Richard Nixon to create the Drug Enforcement Agency which he said was to target the blacks without seeming like uh, the blacks. All of these mm-hmm. things were not crimes before. Drug use was not a crime. That's right. It wasn't and- a crime. So all of a sudden, you know, we've been programmed by the system to say, you know, well, you people that use drugs, they're terrible people and they deserve to be removed from society and, and this and that. Man, I'm tell you, I've been using cannabis since I was like 12 years old. Okay, I've been using cannabis, and, and I ain't, and it has never caused me to harm another individual. So, you know, what I'm saying, I'm sorry. 
It's all good, man. You speaking the truth? <clears throat> like you said, it wasn't a it wasn't a crime, and uh, that coupled with the fact that we know that prohibition, when that time period passed, it was the most violent time, you know, outside of uh, you know the Civil War or Revolutionary War. But I mean, it's probably rivaled if you really had the real numbers. Uh, that those years of prohibition of alcohol was a very violent uh, time period, and because it was filling up the jails and because it was causing drive-by shootings and mass murders of white people the the outcry was insane and people okay enough stop and they had to stop it when they stopped doing it though they had implemented the federal income tax in between because before the liquor tax was the tax the main tax of the country was the liquor tax so when they prohibited alcohol they had to replace that revenue and the federal income tax came into play and became widespread. And then once that was normalized, well, now we bring back liquor and you can get taxed on your liquor and the federal. So the government is going to play a role in this is all I'm saying. If we don't have some way to replace the revenue that they're generating, like we talked about CCA and geo, that's small potatoes. Those two companies. Well, hell, get those um, um, uh, there was a letter signed by over 50 prominent economists that said just the legalization and taxation of cannabis alone would generate billions of dollars, man. Yeah, that's what they said, but those people have to be picked out. Those people have to be chosen who's going to get those spots, who's going to be the, the power players in all of that. They have to have control of that. They already have control of who's, like, they already got who's the sugar providers and who's the liquor barons and who's the to take on drugs and to, and to legalize that or decriminalize that and, and take on new you create players a new in the Caesar. game, you'd have too many wild cards. You'd have too many people that ain't on 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 a message right off the bat. They, you, they these lose people that labor force that they gain by well, yeah, that drug, too drug arrests. So uh, that's where I see the connection with Wall Street overall, with Wall Street always being in the green and always going up. Because they're always getting more slaves to do the work that they used to have private sector people doing. So they don't have to come out with a new wheel, a new, a new widget, a new gadget. They can just lower their overhead, which is what they're doing, and they can, they can show a profit. So you gotta get Wall Street behind decriminalization, because decriminalization is gonna affect them. That's what they talk about in these calls with the CCNGO is like, so what is the, what is the law doing right now? Are we facing you know, decriminalization in this state. What, like they talked about Prop 47. So they see when their workforce is being threatened. They see when their contracts are being threatened. And then you're going to see them rise up in their correctional vendors association unions, correctional association unions, and all these different big lobbying groups are going to rise up and strike down any legislation that wants to decriminalize. So well, it's a huge it, problem, yeah, man. Try to prevent it from, from going forth. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading that uh, article again on Bloomberg.com um, today, and they were talking about, you know, they kind of shook by all this talk of sentencing reforms and, and things of that nature. So they're starting to diversify, which we have always reported on on this program, the different mm-hmm. areas that they have expanded to by buying up other c- 
uh, companies like for, you know, monitoring, you know, parolees and, and, and people like that from, uh, also the healthcare services. And, and of course on the Bloomberg article, they were, uh, basically just quoting George Zoli and he was sounding like a great humanitarian. You know what I'm saying? Right. But, uh, the article failed to note all of the lawsuits that these companies face. You know, perspective is something that's very important. We often talk about static numbers like 2.3 or 2.4 million people in prison right now. But that's just a small fraction when you take it in perspective. I would like to know how many people have actually spent time behind bars between the years of 1972 and 2012 versus the same period before that and compared to other nations. I bet you it would if I would just guess, I would easily say at least fifty million American citizens have passed through those systems uh since that time, maybe more hmm. yeah, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure probably more than that. I mean, when you talk about the uncounted, which i always uh uh I always take into account the the uncounted. In any type of number, whether you're talking about deaths in custody, arrests, jailings, prisons, I don't care because they get away with, we catch them all the time getting away with stolen people, hidden people, people they don't think mean anything, so they, their lives don't get counted. So if they tell me there's 500,000, I believe there's something closer to a million. So when you say 50 million, yeah, I believe that's very possible. I think it's very likely that it's 50 million you know- or more. I just thought about it even more while you were talking and, you know, I, I blurted that out. 50 million can't be. It's got to be more than that. Because just in 2014, 23.4 million people passed through our justice systems, jails, prisons, and monitoring uh, uh, services. So that was 24 million just last year. So maybe you know, we're talking about a lot, about a lot more than 50 million, maybe 150 million. Cause you gotta remember, this is several generations now. You, you, you oh, know, yeah. in, in discussing this, man, again, I, I don't see why it's not, the agenda isn't clear. You know, as I was listening to different programming today and reading different comments from people, it, it should be clear to you what the agenda is. The agenda is slavery. And when I listen to, to African Americans try to say that, you know, black people, uh, bring some of this stuff on themselves by the way that they dress or the way that they speak or the way that they carry themselves. To me, that person is ignorant of history or, or they may be playing a role in, in the enslavement, you know, uh, uh, perhaps a defense attorney doesn't want to see an end to the drug war because then that would mean he would have less clients. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I, I question everybody, you know, but when they <laughs> are cutting food stamp programs, SNAP program, when they're cutting nutritional programs and social safety nets for the poor and closing schools, but building prisons, to me that the agenda is clear of where we're headed. 
I mean, they're spending all this money that you just talked about on correctional facilities and, and, you know, to these private prison enslavers. And, and, and again, you know, like decarcerate PA, when we had them on, they were, you know, uh, uh, bringing up the issue of all these schools being shut down. We hear the same thing out of Chicago. We hear the same thing out of different urban cities. You know, the whole teacher scandal in Atlanta was behind them trying to prevent another school from being shut down. And, and right. so to me, the the agenda is clear that they are, are just trying to make the path, the path to slavery for us, uh, you know, grease down, grease those wheels so that, you know, those, we, uh, you know, run those rails without too much friction. They're just making it easy, man, to enslave us. And I just don't understand why this isn't evident to certain people. It's evident, Scotty, to us. Because we're not co-opted in the system. It's evident to the proxies because they are co-opted into the system, but they're taking a paycheck to act like everything is okay. We talk about, like you always start the program talking about being behind enemy lines. I think people take that as like some kind of a catchphrase or something. I think they think that's like, you know, whole tip or, you know, like some kind of black power statement or something, but that's the truth. We are truly a domestic colony. And what we're dealing with when we talk about mass incarceration, modern-day slavery, the things that we are discussing and breaking down in detail, giving you the specifics, the people, the legislation, the, the revenues, the implications to our society, all the t- personal testimonies, all these things we're giving you is evidence of neocolonialism. It's advancing beyond the colonialism that it was at one time. It is advancing into a new type where these are totally disenfranchised people. See, the last colonialism, straight out of slavery, like the plantation version, where there was straight up the legal, the the law that you faced on the plantation was to get whipped or hung or whatever on the plantation. Okay, so then we went to uh, 13th Amendment version, and it became state sanctioned. Okay, so then Bosley had a right and had a voice and had a say-so and could build and do whatever. Well, it advanced now, the neo, the new version of colonialism is to take again those voting rights away, take again those rights to defend yourself by making it illegal for you to have a firearm. The disenfranchisement of the people and the the take it away, like we saw Ferguson with all that traffic stuff, that traffic is a major setback for people being able to have jobs. When you can't even drive legally and when the police have have a basic right quote-unquote, a right to stop everybody in the city because there's 35,000 warrants and 16,000 people of legal age to drive. So everybody could get stopped. This type of stuff is the neo-colonization of black people. Had to wake up to it, I guess. You know, a friend of mine sent me a picture earlier today, and it was an image of 40 black women who graduated from North Carolina Central University School of Law in 2015 and he was saying this is what the media won't show and this is a a Caucasian friend and he was presenting it to me as you know good news and I'm like that's yet to be seen what good is having all these women with law degrees if they're only going to go out into the system and help support the enslavement of their own people even the defense attorneys because we know that 97% of all federal and 94% of all state uh, uh, charges end up in plea bargains. So if they're just going to go in there and do more of that or pr- prosecute more black people, then that's not really a good thing to be happy about. We need to no. break away from being complicit in the enslavement of our own children. 
Well, three. you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. I'm here, Max Parthas, with Johanan, Elia, and Scotty Reed at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And we're going to take a quick station identification break, and we'll be right back after this. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. May 13, 1985, Philadelphia police dropped two pounds of military-grade explosives onto a house occupied by the Black Political Organization Move, which was founded by its leader, John Africa, in 1972 in Philadelphia. Eleven people, John Africa, five other adults, and five children died in the resulting fire. In an attempt to arrest Move members on bogus charges, the Philadelphia Police and Fire Department laid siege to the home. The fire department flooded the home with water in an attempt to force the residents to come out. After flooding the move house failed to dislodge them, the decision was made by city officials to drop a two-pound bomb supplied by the FBI on the house, even though they knew innocent people, including children, were still in the home. The resulting fire was allowed to burn and eventually led to the burning down of 65 houses in the black community where firefighters were ordered to let the fire burn. Only two people survived the FBI-assisted bombing of the move house. An investigative commission sanctioned by the city would convene in the aftermath of the bombing and the resulting report denounced the actions of the city officials stating that dropping a bomb on an occupied row house was without conscience however no officials were ever charged criminally and many like former prosecutor ed rendell would ascend to higher political office in 1996 a federal jury ordered the city to pay a 1.5 million dollar civil suit judgment to survivor ramona africa and relatives of two people killed in the bombing. The jury found that the city used excessive force and violated the members' Fourth Amendment constitutional rights against unreasonable search and seizure. Today, May 13, 2015, marks the 30th anniversary of this horrific crime, and it's one point in the long history of the terroristic relationship black people have had with law enforcement in the United States. Mass movements continue to arise in resistance to the police terrorism in America. This has been Scotty Reed with your Black Talk Radio weekly commentary. Join us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Thanks for that, Scotty Reed. That was the story of uh, Move 9 in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, you probably know a lot more about the details of it than I do. For me, I always concentrated on the larger story of what occurred. Mm-hmm. But the dirt that was involved in that was amazing. And they say it's the only time that the police have bombed an American city here. But that I we do know remember of. Black Wall Street was also bombed, too. Yeah, and I mentioned I that. <laughs> yeah, that the uh, sheriff of Tulsa, Oklahoma, apologized for their participation uh-huh. in bombing. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier on on uh, Black Talk Radio News. I also recalled, you know, Tulsa, Black Wall Street uh, being mm-hmm. bombed and, and whatnot. Um, I was watching uh, a little bit of the corporate news last night. And I forget what they were discussing, but they had Ed Rendell on, the former governor of Pennsylvania. 
And I was like, the first thing that came to my mind, look at your old criminal ass sitting up there on television and you <laughs> was a party to the bombing of the Move family, you know. And, and so many of these people, man, have never, I mean, all of the people involved in the bombing have never been held accountable for their crime. Okay, and and you know the move organization, um, as I mentioned in the, in that uh, radio commentary, was uh, started in 1972 by John Africa. Um, these people were like into healthy, you know, diets and treating animals like you know uh, 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 beings deserving of respect. And, you know, they, they were PETA before there was PETA. You know what I'm saying? People for the ethical treatment uh, of animals. They were against zoos. And I shouldn't say they were against because they're still alive. Some of them, the ones not that weren't killed in this bombing. Uh, but um, they, they stood up to police violence and, and brutality. Um, they had numerous demonstrations and rallies and, and they were pretty much a thorn in the side of white supremacy, man. And, yeah, they and, confronted yeah. a lot of the stars of the day too, like Jane Fonda and them and, uh, kind of ruined their day. One of the reasons why they, uh, became enemies of the state, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Um, they, you know, of course, as the system always does, and when it's targeting political leaders, you know, harassment, uh, bogus charges. And so they went to the house, you know, uh, trying to serve some warrants on some bogus charges and the, um, people wouldn't come out. The move family wouldn't come out. And so, you know, the fire department started flooding the house, man. I, and, um, you know, just, just totally flooded it out to try to get them to come out. But then, you know, for the police to drop a bomb, you know, on on the top of this building, you know it's occupied by children. I mean, come on, man. How much cold-blooded murderer can you be? You know what's messed up is they were flooding the basement with water hoses, fire department right. water hoses prior to the fire. Right. So the water hoses were That's in what I'm flat. saying. Yeah, that's what and I'm saying. They dropped this uh, firebomb on top of the building. And decided to let it burn, even though there were kids inside and the water hoses were in play. Right. And, and, you know, um, I shared the documentary, which I think was done objectively, um, let the fire burn. And I shared that on, on Facebook, on our uh, page, Black Talk Radio Network's Facebook page, as well as my personal page, Scotty T. Reed. And uh, so I encourage people after the program tonight to go check out that documentary, man. I mean, I, I'm just looking at those kids as they were interviewing the, the little children who were like 10 and under. And to know those children were in that house and you're going to drop a damn bomb on it. You know what I'm saying? And if any of these people still alive, man, I wouldn't be mad if somebody hunted them down and, and exacted justice for their unpunished crimes for murdering these people. There's another video series. It's an eight-part series called Move Confrontation in Philadelphia, which has more original footage, I would think, uh, available to it that you also might want to check out. I put it on our new abolitionist radio page for our listeners to see. But I was watching part eight of that. I, I, I watched maybe three parts so far. But I was looking at part eight, listening to Rizzo speak. And yeah, the Frank same Rizzo. narrative that he was supplying at that time, blaming the media for race baiting and the cops are innocent and all of this stuff, yeah. is the exact same words that I heard came out of the mouth of the, uh, I guess, the 
the head of police. Yeah, exact same things. They look yep. alike. They sound alike. They talked about the same things in the same way. It's just history repeating itself. I mean, it's it, we. What is this? Ferguson is just the precursor for another bombing. Is that what's next? Because there is going to be another city that's going to explode. You're going to see one after the other implode until you address the problems that these cities and counties are dealing with rather than sensationalizing the angst and ire and outrage of the peoples themselves. Hmm. Well, bottom line, man, we are... uh we we behind the enemy line, so all the things that you see and the propaganda you hear um, in response to what's going on is trying to deny the fact that there is a valid concern. Um, because if they have to allow for new abolitionist radio to be correct, if what we're talking about is true, if what the freedom fighters out there, the rioters, the people that's on the front lines and whatever their thing is, the Nakima Levy pounds of the world, the attorneys out there working, the, the people that, that are, you know, the, uh, what's his name? Uh, your boy Neil, uh, uh, the leap, uh, former cop or whatever, you know, people that are, that are in the field that are speaking along the same lines as what we're talking about and calling for justice. If all of us are valid, you know, in what we're saying, then the powers that be, the people that benefit from all of this bull, they all know without a shadow of a doubt that revolution is the only response to this. That's why they keep lying. Cause they mm-hmm. can't allow for there to be not even one time that what is said about them could be taken by people as being true because they know, well, damn, if you're doing all that, then I guess the people probably go, go off, huh? You know, back in the 1800s, the late 1800s, it came down to two choices that uh, America was facing regarding slavery, and that was the slow abolition or the immediate abolition. And there were two parties regarding that those two concepts, to gradually phase it out or to immediately release these people from bondage. And right. I, here we are doing the same thing again, because reform is the equivalent of the slow drag it out thing. We're mm-hmm. going to release 500,000 over the course of 10 years, and then we're going to revisit then and see how we're doing. Or we'll release 20 now, or 4,000 here, or 2,000 over there. But we're going to incarcerate 6,000 over here and build more prisons over there. It's a juggling and stalling act. That's all this reform is, to allow us to be placated so another 50 years down the line we have to face the same problems on a much larger scale. Just like our parents left for us, and just like their parents left for them. We're doing the same thing over again. Sad but true, brother. Sad but true. Well, that's uh, my my commentary on the Move 9 thing. And, you know, first of all, I just want to say rest in peace to the souls that were lost. And uh, I really pray that the people who were affected directly and indirectly have found some measure of peace in their life. So and I hope those who are the guilty parties are suffering uh, me too. humanely <laughs> possible. <laughs> yes, and I hope those those devils responsible burn in hell. Um, for me, I, I, I was always looking at, as I said, the, the larger story of it, and I saw these young brothers and sisters in the late 70s who were only 10, 
a decade uh, after the assassinations of King and Malcolm and the uh, Black Liberation Movement, who were you know trying to make their way in the world and protesting against the ills of the world like we face right now, like we are doing right now, and they ended up being uh, arrested because that was the early stages of mass incarceration as an answer to the black movements of the 60s. Mm-hmm. So they just started doing this to these uh, young men and women, arresting them over and over again. They got tired of it. They r- 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 railed against the system. They demanded the freedom of those people who had been arrested for unjust reasons. They got to the point where finally they would scream it from a bullhorn at the top of the building like I would like to do too, you know? And it got to the point where they become such a thorn in the side of mainstream media, of the police and the system, of the stars of that day with their protests and interrupting their meetings and their rallies and things like that, that they decided to eliminate these people. And our own government formed a conclusive decision to bomb an American neighborhood with children living in it as their answer to what these young men and women were demanding which was only just change and to this day as Scotty has so clearly pointed out not a single person has ever been prosecuted for the crimes involved in here including the murder of babies it's amazing welcome to America 30 years can't we just move forward <laughs> Code words forward. Mm-hmm. Listen, it looks like we're going to conclude on our Move 9. Uh, salute to the Move 9 members who are alive. Salute. Salute, indeed. There's information on the new abolitionist radio. You know it's Move 8 oh, now, oh. right? Yes. Yeah, we lost Brother Phil. Yep, I remember. We reported on it the day it occurred. Yep. Well, we want to move on to our next story. I've been hearing a lot of this lately, and, you know, it's not new, but it's always what the racists and the white supremacists bring up into their media in order to justify the murder and oppression of uh, uh, people of color across this nation. And that's the black-on-black crime thing. What you going to do about black-on-black crime? Look at all those people. They're killing each other. They're like animals. They're savages. They'll rip each other's heart out for a nickel. This is what we hear all the time. So let's address some of these myths. Uh, I got a a uh, graph that came in from Color Lines, and it's five myths about crime in black America and the statistical truths. Number one, myth. Black on black crime is uniquely bad. Number two, myth. Violent crime is on the rise. Three, myth. Justice is applied equally. Like, that's the obvious one. Four, myth. Black kids have behavioral problems. Oh, my God, I've heard preachers tell me that, black preachers. And five, myth, crime is prevalent in the black community. So let's go with number one. Black on black crime is uniquely bad. The reality, most crime is committed by people who know each other. It is segregated as the rest of America. Uh, For instance, homicide rates from 1976 to 2006 show that 86% of white victims were killed by white offenders. 86% of white victims were killed by white offenders. And 94% of black victims were killed by black offenders. Most murders are interracial or intraracial. And number two myth, violent crime is on the rise. 
violent crime rate per 100,000 in the U.S. from 1991 to 2010, uh, crime total was 13% below the 2006 level. So it's dropped 13% of what it was in 2006. The third myth that justice is applied equally. You know, I feel stupid for even having to say this, but reality, crime prevention and enforcement policies target people of color disproportionately. If you don't know that by now, you are living under a freaking rock or part of the people doing it on purpose. The total black and uh, total of black and white drug users in 2006 says 13% uh, were black drug users. The rest were white. Blacks were arrested on drug charges 2.8 to 5.5 times higher than whites in every year, every year, from 1980 through 2007. Now, if we're smoking, uh, I mean, if we're doing drugs at the same rate, and, you're, and we're only 13%, but yet we're getting 5.5 times higher every year consistently from 80 to 2007, that pretty, point, pretty much points out that there is a huge disparity. Fourth myth, black kids have behavioral problems. The reality is that black students are punished more harshly when committing the same offenses as white students. And in a student discipline, uh, discipline rates from 2009-2010, of the total students, 18% of them were black students. Uh, referred to law enforcement, 42% were black students. Only make up 18% of the, uh, of the student body, but 42% of the referred to law enforcement people. Uh, 35% were suspended once, and 39% of black students had been expelled. And in school-related arrests, 35% were black, 21% were white. Finally, the last myth, crime is prevalent in the black community. The reality is that most black youths aren't actually committing any crimes. And uh, we have here the youth behavior in Washington, D.C., demographics. 74% black, 47% male, average age 17. 7% sold drugs, 6% stole more than $100 in goods, 35% said there is high gang activity in their neighborhood, only 4% carried a gun, 11% attacked someone with intent, 6% in a gang and 17% in a crew. There's five myths that have been debunked, provided to you by color lines. Those are not the only myths, but these are what they list. Scotty, you on? Yeah, I mean, I've said, said this, uh, often. You know, most, especially when they try to bring up the myth of black on black crime and use that to criminalize us, you know, um, make us seem like we're less than human, which they have done for centuries. So, you know, no surprise there. But I said, you know, most people, most black people are not committing crime. If we are to believe there are 43 million black people, people classified as African American, however, you know, uh, there are not, 42 million in prison for committing crimes. So, I, I, I mean, just common sense should be able to, you know, uh, uh, lead you to the conclusion that most people are not engaged in crime. And again, some things that they classify as crime, if there is no victim, there is no, how you going, I mean, come on, man. I mean, they can't even prosecute murder charges without a body. So what the hell? If there's no victim, how is there a crime? So, Mm. You don't. Um, you know how I feel about the. You know how I feel about all the uh, 
the black on black crime, the lead in, you know, to the to the six o'clock, nine o'clock, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock news every night, the black on black crime and all these shootings and all this violence in the black neighborhoods. And look, we know number one, when uh black folks commit crimes against black folks, they uh they get caught and they go to jail. And there is a whole lot of unsolved black murders in America. There's something like three hundred and sixty thousand missing black women alone mm-hmm. in America. It's a whole lot of stuff that goes on that's criminal towards black people that there ain't no witnesses, ain't no clues, ain't no nothing going on to it. So when I hear a number like 86% white-on-white crime and 94% black-on-black crime as far as, like, murders directly, I don't believe that number. I, I, I just, I don't believe 94% is black-on-black people killing each other. I think it's a whole... And plus, we talk about the exoneration profiles we talk about, and we know that Chicago, one example of hundreds and hundreds of cases of people falsely accused and imprisoned behind murder charges. New York City, just in the Brooklyn borough alone, a hundred cases just on one cop with Louis Scarcella alone. When we look at these cases around cities around the country where there's thousands of people, the Annie Dukins of the world that affected 190,000 criminal cases, when you look at the lawlessness within the justice system itself, I just don't see how there could be any statistics that, that bear any type of respect they right. come out talking about what the numbers are of what black people do. And, the whole damn system is corrupt as hell. How are you going to tell me who really did anything? Right, right. And I, I would like to know, again, how do they determine with all these unsolved murders who the perpetrator is and what his race was? Right. Simply because right. it was in an area that's predominantly black. Does that mean a black person killed them? You know, when we people hype up the numbers in Chicago, well, I'm like, well, I ain't heard about, you know, I heard about 500 people being killed but i ain't heard about 500 black people being convicted for those crimes how the hell i know it ain't the police since they involved in all kind of criminality anyway right you know the the white cop that got all for it in the hood shooting at black people Mm -hmm. and and, and here's one more uh, uh, thing of the myth number four black kids have behavioral problems reality black students are punished more harshly when committing the same offenses as white students but i I would like to say if black children are having any behavioral problems it's because they are being educated in a system of racism and white supremacy that they are being programmed with a false history uh, uh, in, in, in a history that doesn't include them. You know, I started having, I pretty much, uh, cruised through school, man. Um, you know, God just blessed me with a memory where I pick up things easily and I could read something once and retain that information. So as far as taking tests and stuff like that, you know, I aced the test all the time, always was on a honor roll. But then, you know, once I got up into high school, man, um, I just became bored with it, man. I got bored with the same old story about, you know, the history of the United States and the founding fathers and the pilgrims and all of that, that BS, man. I became detached from school, even though I had good, good grades and whatnot. Man, I quit going to school. I think my last year in school, I missed something like 60 days, man. Not my last year, my junior year. I missed 60 days because I wasn't being challenged. You know, they weren't, they weren't, uh, engaging me, 
you know, with something that was going to hold my attention. So I was like, what the hell, man? I'm not going to school today. Yeah, let's go meet up at the lake, you know what I'm saying, and go swimming and and take a day, you know. And and I would only show up when I knew we had tests. Well, I would go, not just then, but I made sure to show up when I knew there was a test. I read the chapter the night before, and I go and ace the test. And then I'm out of school the next day, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, somebody might interpret that as me having a behavioral problem. Oh, he doesn't want to go to school. He's one of them bad kids. No, the system, the school is not serving me uh properly, you know. And and so yeah, man, I, I if kid if black kids do have behavioral problems in school, um I wouldn't say that, you know, the the problem is rooted uh with the kids themselves, it's rooted with the school. You know, I can uh I had similar issues when I was coming up in grammar and high school and I, um, as you know I dropped out and later in life got my uh, diploma but the two words that would describe what my issues were were easy East Side High School that's mm. where I grew up East Side High School Joe Clark everybody's seen the movie Lean On Me well that was the school in Patterson New Jersey where I grew up the high school East Side and Kennedy I went to Kennedy. Kennedy was a little bit better, but not much. And it was in the same city, and we'd have our football games every year. They still have the football games, Eastside versus Kennedy, every year. But that was one of the things that I was dealing with, and it was a major issue for a lot of us young black brothers and sisters in that day. There was no money in the schools. They were bombarded by cops just, you know, snatching people up like slave catchers do on a regular basis. Entire communities were being destroyed by poverty. Jobs were being shipped out to third world countries and the entire industry of the Silk City had been demolished and and torn out. The only thing that was pretty much left was Mark Howe paper mills and everybody was working at Mark Howe paper mills. But yeah, that that was the two things that screwed me up right there. Eastside High School. Yeah, but my school, I I I went to high school, um, the local high school where I am now, predominantly white. Uh, we weren't lacking for anything at the the high school. It just wasn't, you know, uh, in, in a challenge to me. And I'm sure if I had been white, they would have been looking to put me in advanced classes and and you know what I'm saying, help me to be challenged and and whatnot. Uh, but they, they, they simply didn't give a damn, man. The, the, um, whenever, um, like my, one of my cousins, my younger cousins told me he had went to the guidance counselor and said that he was thinking about dropping out of school. The guidance counselor told him, I think that's a good idea. I'm like, what the hell? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> what the hell? You telling the kid, a kid obviously don't want to drop out or he wouldn't be coming to the guidance counselor. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and, and so, yeah. But again, going back to some of these statistics under myth number four, um, but talking about how, uh, um, you know, um, the punishment of these children, you know, again, we got to go back to Hillary Clinton and it takes a village mm-hmm. <laughs> where she argued for zero tolerance where it come to uh, stu- uh, these kids in school. You know, I could point out as proof that the narrative of black on black crime being presented by white America is wrong. And that proof that you're wrong is the exoneree list. Just look at the list of exonerees, scroll through it and look at the faces. You'll see that in nine out of ten of those faces are black faces that you were wrong about. 
This whole narrative is wrong about black on black crime. You don't say that about Chinese on Chinese crime. You don't say it about Japanese on Japanese crime. You don't say it about dog on dog or horse on horse crime or white on white crime. Why is it only black on black crime? Why do you have to pull this false narrative out and use it to criminalize and demonize us all the time when you're wrong? Most of the time you are wrong. You know, and also what strikes me as convenient to a particular narrative is no one seems to consider white collar crimes in this whole mix. Like, you know, a corrupt banker, a crooked senator, an international exploitive behemoth like Walmart can do more damage that lasts longer with nothing more than a stroke of a pen than all the gangs combined could accomplish in their entire lives. But we don't include that in these crimes. When you tear an entire city apart, like they did mine, Patterson, New Jersey, and send all that labor, all those jobs out to Mexico and Asia, and you destroy these lives, that's not a crime? We don't count that? That's a huge crime. Anyway, debunk the narrative, and if you got any sense, stop using it. Turn Fox News off. It's, it's all designed to defer, to deflect away from the idea, from people realizing that the idea of racial profiling is wrong. So to support racial profiling and to support programs like Stop and Frisk, to support instant demonization of shooting victims, police murder victims, to support brutalization, to support all those wrongful uh, convictions to support that million, that number of one million black people in American jails and prisons to support all of that you have to push this myth you just, you, you have to push it out there, and again it's like the idea of accepting that there is a such thing as an, a systematic oppression of the I mean, how is that so hard for you to believe the people were brought here to be slaves so how is it so hard for you to believe that those same people are not still under a system of oppression. How did the system somehow completely change? You put, you put what, two, three laws on the books that supposedly changed all of law that was previously designed to demonize and criminalize these people and two magic words are going to fix that? No, it's not going to fix it. But the way you deflect from that and not worry about that is to keep talking about black on black crime. Keep showing these trumped up statistics and these bring out these talking heads that, that foam at the mouth and really just appeal to emotion. They don't have any, they don't appeal in, in any kind of way to intellect. They just get people in their emotions, get people work to help you right, them, them blacks. Oh my God. And, mm-hmm. and nobody cares. So, mm-hmm. I mean, our problem is just that we continue to go on as though this system is going to support us, that it's going to afford us some way to live within it and, and thrive, build up a black middle class, which then is in its own sake can begin to support, you know, create black jobs and support black wealth. These things are not going to happen in America. So you're going to continue to be complicit with white supremacy and you're going to continue to be projected as black on black criminals and you deserve what you get. Oof. So said Johan and Elia. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. We're not using metaphors or pretend. We're talking about the real thing, the same old slavery, right here on the blacktalkradionetwork.com. We'll be right back after these messages.
Elliott. First of time for an awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We're going to move on to our next story. But before we do, I just want to put a little piece of information out there. Um, you guys may not know about this. And I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. Well, maybe I am. But nonetheless, Harriet Tubman might have just been voted in to being the face uh, of the $20 bill to uh, replace Jackson, who's been on there forever, and have Harriet Tubman's face instead on the $20 bill. You can find that link on New Abolitionist Radio. Um, to me, that's kind of like putting Jesus on the $20 bill. I'm not really feeling it at all. I don't think Harriet would be happy with it. And it reminds mm-hmm. me of something I have in my own house that I got from an art gallery in uh, Charleston, uh, South Carolina. And is an, it's an original $5 bill from North Carolina, or Charleston, North Carolina. And it has images of slaves on it. And it's a five dollar bill, and I'll post it on New Abolitionist Radio. But it reminds me of that to show what's valuable to America, what they sell, and what they value. Harriet Tubman was a freedom fighter, and she was originally owned as a slave. Uh, well, much of her life was owned as a slave. I can't see her face on some capitalistic uh, symbolism. I just no. it doesn't sit well with me at yeah. all. Can you imagine George Zoli walking around with a wallet full of Harriet Tubman's? Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, Scotty. So, you know, they they got it up as a win, but I don't think it's a win. I think this is not a good thing. And it also furthers the myth that slavery was abolished. Yes, that's how it's going to be. A hero is somebody who helped end slavery. Exactly. (laughs) Well, they go from slave owner to a slave on the same bill. Speaking of ending slavery, Scotty, you are the man. You found some information regarding Abraham Lincoln communicating with Alexander H. Stevens in order to set up what we know was the biggest bamboozlement in the history of the United States, the 13th Amendment. I would love to hear more of what you found out if you're willing to share it with us. Um, Yeah, so I was uh, doing some research for an article and... I was uh just going to write about that that documentary that came out. It's only thirty minutes. Immigrants for sale, and so I started looking for some quotes by Abraham Lincoln on on slavery. And so as I was looking for those quotes, I noticed some other links, and and I was like, you know, let me check this out. And so you know, one link led to another link, and then I uh, came across information. Um, and, and, and this has been uncovered. It's just been hidden. You know what I'm saying? It's in a book, but it's just not widely discussed. And so anyway, before, uh, in 1860, uh, when Lincoln was running for president, he was, uh, I think the congressman from Illinois at the time. Um, I believe he was. He may not have been, but anyway, uh, he had a friend who, uh, by the name of Alexander H. Stevens, who was also a congressperson, but from Georgia. And so these two were, were friends. They were good friends, man. And so, uh, in this book, they, you know, he had written a letter, uh, Lincoln, that is, had written a letter to his friend, uh, Alexander Hamilton Stevens saying, you know, I'm running for president and I'm paraphrasing. I'm running for president 
And I hear that, you know, y'all people in the South think I'm going to come in and, and end slavery and nothing could be, you know, that's not true. And this is his exact quote. And this comes from the book called The Collected Works, uh, Abraham Lincoln, edited by Roy P. Basler, volume four, a uh, letter to Alexander H. Stevens. And it, the letter was dated December 22nd, 1860. Uh, do the people, again, this is Lincoln's uh, writing a letter. Do the people of the South really entertain fears that a Republican administration would directly or indirectly interfere with their slaves or with them about their slaves? If they do, I wish to assure you as once a friend and still I hope not an enemy that there is no cause for such fears. So this is what he told him while he was lying to abolitionists and other people about, you know, being against slavery. He was writing letters to people in the South, this congressman who was a congressman at the time about, you know, that I ain't got no plans to end slavery. I'm just telling these people what the hell they want to hear so I can get the nomination. You know what I'm saying? And and so uh, this Alexander Hamilton Stevens at the, um, 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 once the Civil War kicked off, he became the vice president of the Confederacy. All right. And so I don't have access to the book, but there is a book by Chris DeRose called Congressman Lincoln, and it was published by Simon and Schuster. And it said, it, it said that Lincoln, what I could find out in this book, it said that Lincoln and Stevens met in the closing days of the Civil War. I guess to, you know, kind of negotiate some kind of ceasefire or, or amicable terms of, of which we can end this war. And, but in the book, uh, DeRose claims that the two could not come to an agreement to end the hostilities. But I su- suspect that they lying. I think that that is when they, when those two put their heads together, and came up with the precursor to the 13th Amendment and saying, you know, I'm just imagining how that conversation went. Look, we are too many white boys dying in this war for these Negroes. And so let's go ahead and, and put a stop to this war. And I tell you what, since since y'all were worried about uh, slavery, you know, when I became president and whether or not I was going to end slavery, which I told you I was not. Here, look, if we can just stop all the killing of, of each other, we can just stop that uh let's you know you the south will be able to enslave these people that have uh been set free and so you know again you know we often talk about the 13th amendment which says that slavery and involuntary servitude is uh, uh, is abolished except for punishment for crime the 13th amendment loophole which we know immediately following uh, the passage of that led to the convict leasing programs, led to the black codes, led to, you know, uh, going up through the years to the Nixon administration, the creation of the drug war, and then, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan with the privatized prisons, and then here comes old, old Bill Clinton, and, and, you know, the three strikes in your, in slave for life, and, and, and all of that, and, and it just continues, it continues on. And so, it is my belief that, you know, uh, people are being misled when they say that Lincoln and Stevens could not come to an agreement. And I think it is incorrect for people to even state that the South, the South 
lost the war. I think it was a draw. Because, hell, they still got to practice slavery. And actually, you know, instead of slavery being limited to certain states, you know, um, now every state, you know, can practice slavery now. So, damn it, I think the South won. So, yeah, that's what that was about. Yeah, they did certainly get their concessions. <clears throat> that's uh, great information, Scotty. Uh, well done digging that up. Uh, yeah, man. You know, Appreciate that. Lincoln as the great emancipator when the truth is it couldn't be so much farther away you know mm -hmm. this guy was the one who set up future generations to be where we are right now he mm -hmm. put it all into play and he never ended slavery not uh, at all he, he simply changed the way the system was working so now, instead of southern private plantation owners being able to literally own people they had to go through the middleman who was now the state and mm -hmm. then hire them out through the convict leasing programs to come right back to the plantation and do the same thing. And, and, and now we, we come, you know, full circle. And now if you want to get in on slavery, hell, all you got to do is just find a good stockbroker. So all you got to do, damn shame, that's just that easy. easy. Mm -hmm. Some 12 year old boy in Indonesia could buy stocks in human beings here in America. Mm -hmm. now, right I, now i also start it um uh mentioned in that article because uh, it was really about the um it was about the uh documentary immigrants for sale and one of the things that i thought ways that it fell short besides ignoring all the other kind of slavery that's not related to to immigration um but i understand that they just you know didn't want to hit the people off with too much information at one time and they just wanted to focus on uh the de detaining of immigrants um but um immigrants for sale did not point out that those immigrants being detained in the U.S. are victims of illegal slavery, not covered by the 13th Amendment. Um, and Angela Chan brought that to our attention uh, when she was a guest on Black Talk Radio News. And also, um, I think when she wrote the article, America Never Abolished Slavery. And she points out, she pointed out to me that, you know, uh, immigration violation isn't a criminal offense. That's, that's a civil offense. So therefore, these people have not been convicted of any crime whatsoever, which would allow them to be enslaved on a prison plantation and put to work. That, you know, that's outside of the parameters of legal slavery in America. And, and so I, I thought, you know, perhaps again, you know, we breaking new ground. Um, you know, I'm not going to say we breaking new ground because we stand on the shoulders of giants. You know what I'm saying? Uh, people that, that, uh, recognize, you know, uh, who's coming to my mind? Angela Davis. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yes. people like that, you know, they've been recognized that this was slavery. All right. Um, but you know, I just don't think that, well, I think that the mainstream media has an interest in keeping all of this hidden. They are profiting too, you know, some kind of way. You know, many of these corporations have, have, uh, ties to other corporations. And so, hey, um, as long as black yeah. people are being in prison, Fox News is happy. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, um, again, uh, all of this documentation that we got that shows slavery is still being practiced out in the open. 
yet we still got children being taught in school the great lie that slavery ended and so that's just a damn shame man and and so uh we that is why we do this program every wednesday night you know there's something i was thinking about it's just a what if scenario but because prisons are privately owned corporations right mm-hmm. what's stopping china from buying geo group and cca nothing what's stopping them you know nothing. and what they legal, probably hope they do yeah i'm imagine if a foreign nation bought our private prisons and became in control of the human beings within those prisons, what would we be doing in prisons? Making all those Chinese goods? Amazing. And it's a concept that could happen. It doesn't matter to me who owns the corporation. What matters to me is that they involved in slavery and human trafficking and should be hung from the neck until dead. Well, it is a matter of state security as well because of that. I mean, you know, what type of damage another nation that may is is considered enemies of America would do if they came into control of these private prisons, like, you know, maybe Russia, as I said, or China, or even Iran. Mm. And there's nothing stopping them from doing it. Maybe China just got the idea just listening to this show. They're like, hey. I mean, how do we know some foreign Saudi prince, they got all that oil money, isn't invested in the GEO group? Hell, we know one of them is invested in Fox News. It's an international corporation. We've got to assume that other nations actually own stocks and human beings here. And some of them are maybe government organizations and other, you know, other nations. I mean, this government owns Unicor, so. This is what happens when you privatize prisons. You brought slavery back up in a way we haven't seen since 1850. As Michelle Alexander says, there's more uh, blacks right now in jails and prisons than were enslaved in the height of slavery in 1850. Like, Like Brother Dave was saying earlier, man, they leeches, man. These people are leeches. They, they, you know, they are leeching off the lifeblood of of human beings. That's how they make their profit. Speaking of leeches, <laughs> that's our next story. Is one of these leeches who is positioning himself to be the president Mm-mm-mm. of the United States of America. Uh, he is funded by private prisons and works directly with these private prisons. He's a proponent for private prisons. He's in a state that has one of the most deplorable prison records in the union, Florida. And his name is Mark Rubio. Mark Rubio is funded by private prisons. We got a story that came out of the anti-media and it says Mark Rubio is being funded by private for private um, prisons. Um, Max, before you go into that, I do want to let the uh, listeners know if you have a question or a comment, um, if you're already dialed into the conference line, just hit star six and the number one. That'll put you in the caller's queue. Um, let me get a telephone number out, though. That's 530-881-1400, extension uh, 549-032-pound. Hit star six and one to enter the caller's queue. Please continue. Yes, and in case uh, you... Can't remember the number when you hear it said like that. I posted it on New Abolitionist Radio. Please feel free to call with your opinions or questions. We'd love to hear from you uh, and what you have to say. Uh, as I was saying, that uh, Mark Rubio uh, is 
one of those people who was employed by prison slave uh, prison enslavers. Johanna, would you like to take this story? Because I know you research a lot about these circumstances where politicians are being paid off by private prisons and having, uh, what is it, $30,000 of plate dinners <laughs> and things like that. So, every uh, kind of would, corruption, yeah. Yeah, would you every, like to Every kind of us? corruption imaginable, man, yeah. Uh, as we've, uh, we put the idea out there, um, what, probably about a month ago, and I think we're still forming how we're going to really put it together and, and who's going to be in on doing the research and, you know, who wants to volunteer. We've had the idea and the move to abolish 21st century slavery group for some time now to take this 2016 election cycle and put all of these candidates through, you know, an abolitionist uh, filter, you know, see who comes, you know, where they're coming from, each candidate, uh, who has supported them, who has um, who has uh, uh, benefited from private prison money directly, who's invested in it, who's come up with laws to, you know, like with Hillary Clinton, we exposed her, uh, obviously, her connection with Bill and the, you know, the, the bringing 500,000 additional people in the, into the prison system under his watch alone, plus the three strikes, plus the 100 to 1 crack sentencing. So these are ways that we vet these people out. So really Marco Rubio and his history, you know, he's going to be, um, he's going to be, uh, uh, up under the, up under the, the microscope too. And this, uh, we've got a couple of articles actually, um, one from the anti-media, um, and then another one also from uh, the Center for Media and, De- and Democracy's PR Watch, where they talk about, you know, this guy's connections. Uh, also, uh, yeah, oh, 20, oh, the 2016 Abolitionist President Selection.info. Yeah. Uh, that's an article that, that I wrote about uh, Marco Rubio. I said he might be the worst of the worst. He might be. Um says uh, one rising player in the game of bullying and uh, – up oh, sorry, bullying, buying uh, – and selling politicians is surprisingly going unnoticed. The private for, for profit prison industry, while one can only assume that it is not by accident that these companies and their contributions are flying under the general public's radar, we as people need to place a media tracking device on the activities of these professional jailers. Geo and Corrections Corporation of America are two, the two largest four prison private companies in the United States. These companies, along with their peers, have dished out more than $10 million to political campaigns since 1989. Which that's not really the the whole story. That that ten million dollars is nothing. They put out um, uh, nearly fifty million dollars just since two thousand and one. Geo and, and Corrections Corporation of America, and we got that detailed and itemized from that website uh, muckety dot com, where they show you know the governors' races, the Democrat Republican governors' races, state to state, Democrat and Republican Congress races, state to state. Um, congressional races, presidential campaigns, they show the amounts that they've given, 75,000 here, 25 there, 50,000 over here. I mean, so 45 to 50 million dollars since 2001 is really a, a, a more realistic number. Um, 25 million spent on lobbying. So there's money in the political campaigns and then also 25 million just for lobbying again, you know, lobbying for, uh, laws and whatnot that are beneficial to the private prisons. And uh, this story goes on talking about uh, Rubio being involved in this. Rubio, senator, U.S. senator from state of Florida, and president, uh, current presidential candidate, is a direct beneficiary of the racket that is the private prison system in the United States. In fact, Rubio is the Senate's top career recipient of contributions from previously unmentioned uh, GEO and the country's second largest for-profit uh, for prison company. 
Jill has put nearly $40,000 in Rubio's campaign fund on the table, you know, that you could see above board. You get, they gave $40,000, but I can tell you, um, I can tell you that he's, he's received more than $40,000 under the table. There's no way yeah, around it. We reported it, it, that money back in 2011 or 12, uh, right here on New Abolitionist Radio. So right. then he was getting $40,000. Here's years later, yeah. and he's a presidential nominee with a super PAC. Oh man, the prisons can just funnel money into those super PACs for him. Yeah. Well, it says they've given another $2 million to the Republican Party of Florida, which is, of course, his home state. Prison company and current senator have been in bed together going all the way back to when Rubio served as speaker of the Florida House of Representatives. And if you, and just to, you know, I, I try to keep the narrative going, but just to remind you, when this, uh, when this is going on with, uh, Florida, when we talked about over this last year even, what our, our friend, the abolitionist George Malacrot, has been telling us the, the, uh, the stories about, uh, trying to get the Florida prison system under control and their fourth, uh, Department of Corrections Secretary in the last four years under Governor Rick Scott, who just got his second term. When we talk about uh, the Florida Senate bringing up a reform bill that, you know, had some teeth in it, had some things in place to give oversight, you know, bring in an outside party to to look at these things. You know, they still haven't given a death determination in deaths like Darren Rainey's, who was boiled to death. I mean, so much corruption, and the, the Senate brought out a, a bill that was intended to reform some of these laws, change some things that are in place, give the people a little bit better uh, protections in the prisons or whatever, and also give the employees an opportunity to speak out on what was going on and not get repercussions. Well, the Florida House of Representatives came back and struck that down and put their own bill up that had no kind of uh, real reform in it. And then they voted, you know, like a week later. They didn't even really lobby for it one way or another. They didn't listen to the Senate bill again. They voted for it immediately through the Senate bill. Then they closed session. They're done for the rest of the year now. So this is still corrupt even after he's moved on. So this just shows you what was going on when he was there was corrupt as hell. Hell, when he was in the Florida House of Representatives, the state of Florida was attempting to privatize every prison in the state. The only reason they didn't privatize every prison in the state of Florida when Rubio was in the House of Representatives down there is because the Florida uh, Department of Corrections is represented by the Fraternal Order of Police Union. All those employees that work for state corrections officers, they're a part of the FOP and the, and the policemen's bureaus and unions and all of that. And those police unions rose up and raised their own $10, $15 million to, for campaigning and lobbying and everything else and got that uh, law struck down. So here we are again, the people in the balance. You got the police union fighting on one side. You got the corrupt politicians like Rubio on the other side trying to privatize. And the police unions fought and won. So they could keep the state facilities in the hands of state employees. But anyway, I'm just giving you some background on when this, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like what's going on in the state itself, where he even comes from. So hell yeah, he's corrupt as hell. Um, $110 million while leading the house, Geo was awarded a state government contract for $110 million for just one facility. It was not long after that when Rubio hired an economic consultant who just so happened to be a former trustee of Geo's real estate trust. It should be also noted that Geo Group's co-founder and chief, chief executive uh, officer, George Zoli, has personally donated $6,500 to Rubio since 2009. $6,500 ought to insult you. That ought to piss you off. When you hear George freaking Zoli making, he's the highest paid government employee in America, 
from 2008 to 2012, he generated over $22 million off of state contracts. Your tax dollars. He's the highest paid government employee in the, in the country. And you really think he only gave $6,500 to Marco Rubio, a man who he is responsible for positioning in the, in the, in the places that he was in, in the state of Florida government, let alone in the United States government. And now I'm sure it's sitting right there behind him, pushing him to be the president. And you think he really only gave this man $6,500. You gotta be crazy. So, I'll stop. I mean, this, the story just goes on telling you the money and the money and the money. You ought to know by now that this dude is a damn snake. Hey, we just got a message in from one of our listeners who said, uh, the new abolitionists are absolutely on point. Much, much respect. Appreciate right it. Respect, respect to you. Indeed, man. Uh, we, we are on point. And that's the problem. <laughs> that really is the problem. Yeah. On yeah. point. Where are, where's everybody else? How yeah. can you not see this? And so we're here screaming at the top of our lungs and showing enough evidence to prosecute a ham sandwich in this prison industrial complex every week and every day because we don't stop here. For the three of us, this is our life. This is, you know, what we're, we, we don't see anything more important outside of our own family and health than, than this. And we've invested everything we have into it, mainly for one reason. So you can wake the hell up. <laughs> That's right. really the main reason. Because we outnumber these fools. All we need is an educated mass of people, and it's a done deal. Yeah, I don't like that word, educated. I'm kind of like souring on that word. I will, I will replace that with informed. As Scotty just said, all we need is an yeah. informed mass of people critical mass where enough people are fully aware of this in its actuality and all its truth and horror that they decide they no longer will tolerate it or participate in it or support it in any way shape or form and that means even if you have to quit your job if you're working as a prison guard or you're a cop or you're a judge or you're a lawyer just walk out give it up say no I don't want to do it anymore. I know I'm making $100,000 a year, but I'm putting thousands of people behind bars for nothing. Yep. Yeah. Um, state of affairs, man. Shout out to uh, the people that participated in the rally against um, the GEO group. Um, I think I might have shared some pictures on Facebook from uh, one of our friends, uh, let me check new abolitionist radio. I mean, it was a lot of people, man. I mean, it was a lot. Uh, let me see if I see that. Um, uh, let me see. But there was a massive protest, um, of black people, non-white people, white people, and they, uh, were down there at Geo Group's headquarters, man, protesting. I can't find it right now, but once I do, I'll share it on New Abolitionist Radio because those people obviously are informed. And I've seen a couple of signs that said, you know, in slavery. So I'm like, right on. Awesome. We need more of that. Get right up in their faces all the time. All the time. Um, our information on Marco Rubio is right there on New Abolitionist Radio. Check it out. Uh, don't support the lesser of two evils. Force these people to do what's right. Could you and, imagine a presidential election, Hillary versus Marco? Damn. <laughs> I mean, wow. wow. 
Just write Scotty Reed's name in there or Max Parker. <laughs> Just have a mass sit out. You know, I, I think the strongest statement that we're ever going to be able to make in this lifetime to this damn crooked ass system. People just stand down. Let them go to their own little, you know how like little kids had these magical tea parties, uh, fantasy tea party where they just want you to come sit at the table and you just pretend like you serving and you eating cookies and you drinking tea and you just looking at this little kid like, well, it's a child. You know, I'm not going to say this is insane, but that's what these damn fools are doing. They're holding these elections. They're having these campaigns. They're going to have these town hall meetings and have these debates on TV and it's all going to be so serious. This, this mess is as much fantasy as the three-year-old having a tea. They know they are crooked as hell. That's a solution to break them up. That's, it's, if it's okay when your three-year-old's doing it, but if you got a 13-year-old that's sitting up here for real still playing this game with you and really believing this, you need to, you know, snap them out of it. It's likely you're going to say, look, I'm not coming in your room and playing the tea party game no more. You're too old for this. We need to sit up here and let these people know, look, we're not even playing your game. Nobody is this damn dumb no more to believe none of this. What we're not going to do is show up and vote for a damn thing. What are you going to do when none of us votes for nothing? I don't mean nobody. Zero votes counted in every state. Just nobody, nobody wants the president. <laughs> just stop. They yeah. got to do something better when you just stop. But as long as you keep giving consent, that's what it is. Keep playing the game. You're giving your John Doe. You're saying this system is okay. I am going to sign on the dotted line to support this system despite what it's doing to me. And if I'm only right. offered these options, then I will choose from those options available. How can you be that ignorant to just keep choosing from the worst possible choices? Like, okay. I found it. Um, I found the pictures. I'm just now sharing it to our new abolitionist um, radio page on Facebook. It was posted by the Florida Immigrant Coalition. Um, and they were, again, uh, down there in Florida protesting uh, against the GEO Group. It, it says the GEO Group is the second largest for-profit for private prison company in the country. Immigrant students and other community members protested today at their annual sharehold meeting in Boca Raton. We need to get our people and our money out of prison and prison money out of politics. And as I stated, as I was looking at uh, some of the some of these pictures, I seen a couple of signs that was correctly identifying this as slavery. Awesome, awesome. I mean, they had a, a big turnout too, man. It's a lot of people of all different ethnicities, and it's a beautiful thing to see. Well, we got to go. Uh, we got to take a break now, I believe. Uh, yeah, and, we overdo. But, but before we take the break, I just want to say that the biggest thing we can do is change our own mind. We have to change our perspective. We have to change how we address this problem. If we continue to call it by these uh, watered-down, politically correct terms then we would treat it like a non-problem. But when you start calling it slavery, everything changes. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after this. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules, 
visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we just finished our last story and I think we're going into our next segment, which is our Ferguson is America segment. And uh, the way cities are rising up right now, uh, you know, Ferguson might just be a misnomer. You know, it could get worse. Baltimore is looking like it might be. But nonetheless, this is Ferguson and is America. And much like our examination of all 50 states' state constitutions to find out what type of language they had in their constitutions or didn't have in their constitutions regarding modern-day slavery in the 13th Amendment, we are now checking in the Department of Justice fashion, looking for the same things that they found in Ferguson in every state in the Union. And today, we are up to Delaware. Uh, you know, Johanan and Scotty, Eric, with each state that we do, my mind gets blown even more. And, you know, I have my own issues that I deal with sometimes as far as understanding things. But these things blow my mind. And there's some missing links that I found about Delaware that's pretty amazing. Maybe you guys can help me figure it out. Have you seen any of the links, either of you, that I've been putting at the move to? Yeah, I saw what you put in the the, the move group. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. If you're a listener right now, please go and join the move to abolish 21st century slavery group. And you'll see it pinned there. Every week we pin it up. And it's a list of about 15 to 20 different pieces of information regarding this particular state. Um, I found out some things, as I said, that just threw me for a loop. Uh, let me start with what I found in the order I found it, okay? Uh, 44% of Delaware's dropouts are black, and black unemployment is twice that of whites. About 22% of Delaware's residents are black, but nearly 6 in 10 people in Delaware prisons are black. This is from a uh, Delaware chief, uh, who, uh, chief justice who targets, says, prisons target racial, with racial disparities. He said, locking up so many people in Delaware where prisons constantly struggle, prisons constantly struggle with overcrowding hasn't made Wil- Wilmington or the state less dangerous. Uh, Strine's wide-ranging speech and later interview also included suggestions that state leaders discuss moving towards a metropolitan police force and changing boundaries for school districts. We are at a very disturbing time in our state's history, said Shrine, who took office a year ago. Delaware has about 5,700 people in prison. Statistics show with about 23% of those held because they cannot post bail while awaiting trial. Does that sound familiar to you? That's exactly what was going on in Ferguson and in Baltimore where people can't get out because they can't post these bails. Another thing I found, uh, there was a, this story of what happened. There's a sign in Delaware schools uh, in several cities, apparently in Delaware. Let me read what I found. It says, this sign says, you can read what it says in English. In Spanish, it says, paraphrasing, you have to have a permit to play here or you will be arrested. The English version contains no information about needing a permit or else you will be subject to police action. It is an obvious intimidation tactic and a not-so-subtle whites-only sign. So if you are a white English-speaking American, you can play here at your own risk so long as you have a parent or guardian watching. If you are a brown 
If you dare play here without a permit, we will arrest your immigrant ass. That is the freaking height of racism. And I will see, this is what he says, I will see to it that who is ever responsible for these signs will have their public careers ended immediately. So apparently these, these uh, number of signs in these Delaware parks that say parental or guardian supervision is required for the use of this playground equipment. Play at your own risk. And then there's a Spanish translation under it, but the Spanish translation tells you that you'll go to jail if you come in here unsupervised with your kids. So that's one of the things that show how they have this racism right in your face. And if you don't if you're not aware of it, just recently there's a video been going around out of Delaware where a police officer kicked a suspect in the head. Now we've seen this, and I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, we'll try to get the video to you on the page. The video captured by a dashboard camera on August 23, 2013 shows the uh, moment Captain Corporal Thomas Webster IV walks up to Latif Dickerson as he complies. Now we, when we saw this video, he was complying. There was a this word that went out that one of these people had a gun. This man was never saw with a gun. When they approached him, he was walking, and the cops ran up on him and told him to put his hands over his head, get down on the floor. And when he leaned down on the floor, the cop kicked him in his head and broke his jaw, and uh, it's possible gave him permanent damage. Uh, police were responding to a fight at a Hess service station. A dispatcher can be heard saying that one of the suspects was wearing a yellow shirt and a hat, similar to Dickinson's similar to Dickinson's clothing, and had a gun. Prior to the encounter, no gun was found at the scene and charges against Dickinson, including resisting arrest, theft, and assault, were dropped. The site yeah. Webster has suspect Webster was suspended with pay pending an investigation. But a grand jury elected not to indict him in March of 2014. With the release of the disturbing video, Webster was indicted on Monday for second degree assault after a second grand jury re reviewed his case. So until somebody saw the video, they weren't going to do anything to him. He just got paid leave, a vacation for kicking a black guy in the head who had done nothing and wasn't involved in anything. But once the video came out, now a second grand jury has indicted him. That's recent right. news of how the cops are acting in Delaware and what they almost got away with, if not for blatant truth, right in your face. Um, there's another story in here where the private prisons, I was a little confused about what's going on in Delaware with private prisons. See, I found out that in 1998, they conducted an experiment by inviting Wackenhut at the time to come in and build these prisons and to provide the services that they needed uh, there in Delaware. So uh, they, let me just read the story for you. This is from 1998. So we got a blast from the past to see Delaware's history in private prisons. Imagine it's April 15th. Instead of writing a check to the Internal Revenue Service, you make it out to Private Collections, Inc., a for-profit company Congress hired to cut costs and boost revenues. PCI checks your return, and after subtracting a commission, hands your money over to the government. Would that make you more likely to cheat or be more careful? Because your return will get a going over by a company that maximizes its profit by maximizing collections. That's the kind of experiment Delaware County is trying, except with its county jail and its inmates. 
The new prison in Royal Thornton, capacity 1,562, was built by and is being staffed by Wackenhut Corrections Corp., a private for-profit company that operates, at that time, 14 states and th in three forum countries. So imagine you just got sentenced, you're searched by a guard wearing a Wackenhut's Corrections emblem on his or her sleeve with Delaware County Jail written underneath. The Wackenhut warden is supervised by the county, but his company ultimately answers not to elected officials, but to its stockholders. Now this was the experiment that began in 1998 in Delaware. So I went to research to see how many private prisons are in Delaware now. Apparently, Delaware has this weird thing going on where the prisons and their jails are all the same thing. So if you're going to jail overnight for drunk and disorderly, or you're going to prison for 20 years, you're going to the same place. And I don't quite understand how that works either. But I looked up to see how many private prisons they have, and according to the Department of Justice's records, they have none. But in all the news reports and articles I'm reading, they have four, including their youth detention facilities. So there's some kind of weird thing going on here in Delaware. Nonetheless, there are at least 17 stories that I posted here on our Move to Abolish 21st Century sla uh, Slavery Group to show you that Delaware is Ferguson. They're practicing slavery and human trafficking. They're profiting off the backs of the poor and minorities and I was told that I shouldn't use that word. So poor and people of color. And they're doing it as a way to fund their counties and cities. Delaware needs to be looked into. Any thoughts on uh, Delaware is Ferguson? Just great job, man. I want to commend you for doing the research. And again, I thought it was um, a genius for you two guys to come up with this segment to replace, you know, us examining the state constitution since we got through all uh, 50. So um, I tell you, man, uh, uh, people just, you need to recognize what is really going on. And Ferguson was not an anomaly as, you know, Max and Johanna is showing us every week. It is not an anomaly. It's being practiced. They following the yep. same blueprint in just about every every state like i said about you know the 13th amendment before you know the 13th amendment slavery was at least restricted to certain areas of the united states after the 13th amendment damn everybody got in on it you know there's a few more stats that people might be interested in one i found from nic state statistics of delaware says the crime rate in delaware as of 2013 is about 17 percent higher than the national average rate so apparently they're uh, crime experiment wasn't working. Property crimes account for about 86% of the crime rate in Delaware, which is about 14% higher than the national rate. The remaining 14% of violent crimes and about 41% higher, 41% higher than other states. And they have a graph to show you how they compare. And then further, uh, prison compared to jail facilities. Prisons are longer term facilities owned by a state or by the federal government. Prisons typically hold felons and persons with sentences of more than a year. However, the sentence length may vary by state. Six states, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Vermont, Delaware, Alaska, and Hawaii, have an integrated correctional system that combines jails and prisons. There are a small number of private prisons, facilities that are run by private prison corporations, whose services and beds are contracted out 
by state or federal governments. That's on the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, in their home page. And then the, the last one is prisons. Delaware spends a lot of money to incarcerate thousands of its citizens. Thursday's inmates population was 5,684, exceeding the 5,210 inmate design capacity of Delaware's prisons. Officials have added third beds to cells to help compensate for overcrowding. A Department of Corrections spokesman said lawmakers budgeted $55.4 million last year to provide health care for Delaware's inmates. Another big cost driver inside Delaware's prison. So they got almost $60 million just going towards the health care of these 5,600 uh, men and women. You know, it's pretty amazing. And their prisons are the top uh, number three in items of the state's budget. So they're the, the prisons, Department of Justice is their top three, is the number three highest uh, amount of investment in the state's cost from their coffers. But there you have it. Delaware is Ferguson. And you're going to find this state after state. I'm looking forward to finding the, to talking about the states that have already rose up. By the time we get to them, there's just going to be huge amounts of information. And we need someone like the President of the United States to really crack down on this in a way that has never been done before in the history of America. Mm-hmm. Well, I just got to say, rest in peace, rest in power to our brother Johnny Lorenzo Clark, who was taken from us by lynching up there in Dover, Delaware, back in 2012. Uh, Staying in, in solidarity and salute to a brother, uh, uh, Henry Fordham, who they attempted to lynch, and he was able to escape and tell his story and went on to, he's still facing, you know, police t- terrorism and brutality still now for trying to bring it out. And, and at that time, the sitting um, uh, state attorney general was... Uh, uh, Joe Biden's son, Bo Biden, he refused to investigate, you know, the, the claims, refused to investigate this man's death. Um, one of our former guests, uh, an abolitionist, excuse me, professor, uh, Dr. Jahi Issa, who was, uh, up there at, uh, I think story, it was at yeah. Delaware State. Delaware. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think he was at Delaware State. Um, he just tried to, to talk about these things. And brought out the KKK flyers they was passing around and the neo-Nazi information they was passing around and putting on campus even, you know, at a, at a historically black, uh, university, uh, trying to terrorize the students and the faculty. And all he did was try to speak out on it. And they came together and had a rally, you know, speaking against these things that was going on. And he ended up getting arrested and ended up losing his, losing his job. So, uh, yeah, you damn right. Delaware is Ferguson, man. This whole country is built on this, on this madness. So none of it surprises me. I just want people to wake up to the it. kids. Cause, uh, there's, this, I think you might have shared the data shows school to prison pipeline still flowing. Uh, that article actually mentioned Delaware. <laughs> you know, it said the study identifies several outlier states with police referral rates more than double the national average rate of six students for every 1,000. Virginia topped the list with about 16 referrals per one, and Delaware with 15. Hmm. So from the cradle to the to the uh, prison cell to the grave, they're getting a hold of you. It's like a freaking human assembly line. Born to be a slave. Well, um, we're right coming on. up... Uh, yeah. 
we're coming up on our final uh, segments, and uh, our next one is where we uh, speak of the brothers and sisters who are getting free these days, you know, with projects like the Innocence Project, who are doing such wonderful work and getting people their freedom, which is the equivalent of what Harriet Tubman would do or, or many of the other Underground Railroad uh, conductors who brought people to freedom, men and women who spend lifetimes uh, not only incarcerated, but living a life uh, as a guilty person of something they had never done. You know, and this uh, week, our rider of the 21st century Underground Railroad is Kia Stewart, who was exonerated April 13, 2015, after spending nearly 10 years of, li of a life sentence behind bars for the killing of Bryant B.J. Craig Jr. And Kia Stewart just recently walked out of a Orleans Parish criminal courthouse a free man, and I believe that was on April 13th. Johanna, would you like to cover the exoneree? Sure. I can share the story. This week's um, underground railroad survivor, back from back from the dead, basically. You know, once they put you in there, that's really all they intend on to happen to you is you die, be a slave till you die. Until mm, so, you die. Yeah. So uh, the title of the story from... Um, Nola.com. It's taking a minute for it to load. Uh, Angola lifer has conviction overturned. Charges dropped for uh, a pre-hurricane murder. I don't know why this is taking so long for it to load. I had to link up. I, you know, I try to keep the links to a minimum. And Scotty has always reminded me uh, affecting our the sound quality on the on the program. So I don't know. Yeah, it's like that me sometimes it's hard to load, especially if they have a video or something attached to it. At any rate, uh just from the from the blurb that you had written on here, exonerated April thirteenth, twenty fifteen, Kia Stewart twenty seven. Uh said that Stewart's trial prosecutors relied on just one eyewitness, a friend of of Craig's who identified Stewart as the killer. Prosecutors chose not to call the New Orleans police detective in the 2005 case, LaFleur Young, who was fired before the case came to trial. And I, don't, I can't get this link that you have here to open, Max, for some reason. Um, it won't, okay. Now, now, just as I say that, <laughs> okay. it finally opens. Great, great, great. Okay. Man convicted on murder charges in pre-hurricane Katrina killing in the Lafitte housing projects had his conviction vacated and murder charges dropped. Um, Monday, April 13, 2015, after spending nearly 10 years of a life sentence behind bars for the killing of, B of Bryant B.J. Craig Jr., Kia Stewart, 27, was able to walk out of the Orleans Parish Criminal Courthouse a free man. Orleans Par Parish Criminal District uh, District Court Judge Daryl Derbigny threw out the conviction following requests from Stewart's attorneys and Orleans Parish District Attorney Leon Canizaro's office. It marks the first major case uh, overturned as a result of a joint probe by the Joint Conviction Integrity and Accuracy Project. So here we have another integrity unit, um, which is my first time hearing about this, so I'll be checking them out. Um, another integrity unit like, uh, you know, Brother Craig Watkins uh, had in Dallas uh, when he was district attorney, like uh, Ken Thompson in Brooklyn, uh, several others around the country, just taking the reins, you know, and forcing the issue of, look, man, we know that these convictions ain't right. We, we know this stuff ain't kosher. So thankfully, they have the the, the guts to uh, access their um, 
resources that they have in place to to investigate these because you know this is changing people's lives quite literally. So it says this is a, it marks the first major case overturned as a result of a joint probe by the Joint uh, Conviction Integrity and Accuracy Project. An effort the district attorney and the Innocence Project of New Orleans launched last summer to examine a number of cases. Following the ruling, Stewart, still shackled and wearing an orange jumpsuit, shook his head and broke into a wide grin. The sheriff's deputy removed his handcuffs in the courtroom, and Stewart was able to change into a pair of dark slacks and a red shirt. He kept on his black Angola-issued Crocs, which he admitted were pretty worn out. Man, I'm feeling good, he exclaimed once he exited the courtroom. His relatives surrounded him, some hugging him and kissing him for the first time in nearly a decade. Mm-hmm. Derbingi was the first, was the same judge who presided over Stewart's conviction on April 22, 2009, when an Orleans Parish jury ruled 10 to 2 that Stewart was guilty of a second degree murder in Craig's killing. Craig was shot to death on his birthday, July 31st, 2005, less than a month before Hurricane Katrina made landfall in New Orleans. Craig was reportedly shot following an argument that ensued when he nearly struck a pedestrian standing in the middle of the road. Following a brief investigation, uh, police identified Stewart as a suspect in the killing, and he turned himself over to authorities a few days later. But at Stewart's trial, prosecutors relied on just one witness, a friend of Craig's, who identified Stewart as the killer. Prosecutors chose not to call the New Orleans police detective in the 2005 case, LaFleur Young, who was fired before the case came to trial. Mm-hmm. Man, the cop was crooked as hell. Before the case came to trial, you wouldn't call. Just crooked as hell, man. How can that even be? I won't start ranting. I'm sorry. We're trying to wrap up. Stewart was represented by attorneys with Tulane University Law School Criminal Litigation Clinic, who at the time of his trial said they were unable to locate any witnesses, most of whom had relocated following the storm. The same attorneys who represented Stewart during his trial later asked the judge to grant him a new trial which uh, Derbini refused at that time. During an evidence hearing in Derbini's courtroom Thursday, April 9th, Stewart's attorneys and prosecutors told the judge they believed Stewart had not received a fair trial and had received ineffective assistance of counsel. They noted multiple witnesses claimed they saw another man, not Stewart, kill Craig, but those other witnesses were never called on to testify at the trial. On the morning of the shooting, police said Craig and friends Jason Alexander were on their way to the home of Craig's mother to celebrate his birthday when Craig turned the corner onto the 700 block of North Prayer Street, there, he nearly struck a man who, in turn, confronted Craig before pulling a gun and shooting him multiple times. Craig died at the scene. The gunman later identified by six witnesses is Antonio Barnes fled. Stewart had been sleeping at a friend's home nearby, was seen walking over to the murder scene, joining a crowd of onlookers. One witness later told attorneys for Stewart that they saw him wiping sleep from his eyes and that the 17-year-old still had drool around his mouth like he had just woken up. <laughs> Alexander, oh, I wish Betty wished he stayed in the house on that one. Alexander was the sole witness to the shooting and identified Stewart as the shooter, something his attorneys later attributed to a quote-unquote an honest mistake. Mm-hmm. Damn, 10 years out of my life. Mm-hmm. This was a very unusual case. Emily Moss, Stewart's attorney and Innocence Project New Orleans director, told the judge, there's so much evidence that Kia Stewart did not commit this crime. One by one, the attorneys took turns reading off the names of multiple witnesses who said they saw Barnes kill Craig but were never called on by the defense team at the time. Mm-hmm. Damn, man. You got See, the this, whole damn block telling them what happened. This is why I'm trying to say having 40 black lawyers is not necessarily a good thing because this is oh. what's happening. Wow. Uh, Barnes was shot dead in 2006 while trying to rob a Katrina uh, evacuee um, in uh, in Houston of their FEMA check. Wow. 
Wow. Uh, Mom pointed to at least 18 witnesses who would have testified in Stewart's defense and called Stewart's representation at trial deficient, either because they lacked the capacity or the expertise. Besides the six people who said they specifically identified Barnes as the shooter, Ma said three other witnesses were able to confirm that it was not Stewart who committed the killing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of Barnes, Mike Maven, later said he was nearly he was nearby the shooting and saw Barnes running away from the crime scene carrying a gun. Maven said that uh, Barnes confessed to him later that day that he killed Craig because Craig almost hit him with his car. Another man testified that he drove Barnes past the crime scene so Barnes could make sure Craig was dead. <sighs> Shout out to this brother. He's out. Kia Stewart, our, our exoneree, because this story yeah. ain't going to get no better. I'll put the link up. But, damn, if you can't hear all of that insanity, this is what it takes to get to put, like, to put black folks in prison like this. The definition of conspiracy. This dude had nine witnesses. This all said it was not him. He had another eighteen witnesses that came out and said it was this other dude. One dude came out and said he drove him in his car past the scene and just so he could look and see if he killed a man. Yeah, but yet, people still believe law and order is someplace. Some place in existence in this country. Some people still think that the courts and the police and the judges and the prosecutors and the jailers and these people have the last say over your life and just, hey, don't commit crime. This dude didn't commit no crime, so what now? Yeah, I mean, what are you going to tell him? You, did anybody warn him not to wear dreadlocks? Did they warn him not to sag his pants? Did he not sag his pants? Was he not cursing and smoking weed or something like that? I mean, what could he have done differently? To prevent his life from being destroyed. Hmm. Not be born black? That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. When you look at the list of the faces on the Innocent Projects, the Innocence Project, and you see they're overwhelmingly black men, you have to come to some kind of a conclusion that apparently somebody's screwing up, and they're only screwing up with certain people. Right, right. Well, there you have it, our 21st century rider of the Underground Railroad, and we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Kia Stewart. Salute. Enjoy your freedom, brother. Um, this is our, our next to pretty much our final segment of the broadcast today. It's been a powerful broadcast. It is, is every week, and we hope that next week when you come back, you bring somebody else or you share this information with them and let them hear it, because if they don't know, they can't act. And I'm a firm believer that once you become aware of something, you become responsible for that knowledge. So let's make some people responsible. Uh, William H. Johnson, born 1833, 11-11. William Henry Johnson in 1833 is celebrated on this date. He was a black abolitionist, politician, and crusader for the rights of blacks. Johnson was born near Alexandria, Virginia, of free parents. Johnson left home in Virginia at the age of 12 to travel to Philadelphia, where he learned to be a hairdresser. He came to Albany, New York in 1851, where he immediately became involved in the Underground Railroad. He assisted Stephen Myers in the work he was pursuing. He returned to Philadelphia in 1855, where he continued his work as and activist with the Underground Railroad. He became involved in the Banneker Literary Institute and with others 
where he could write and speak against slavery. The work he was doing with fugitive slaves forced him to run away from Philadelphia in 1859. When the Civil War began, he joined a Connecticut unit participating in the Battle of Bull Run, uh, Roanoke, and New Bern. Johnson returned to Albany in 1864, where he began an involvement in politics. He was a member of the NYS Equal Rights Committee and became its chairman from 1866-1873. He drafted an amendment to the military code of NYS, striking the word white from the document. The change was accepted in 1872. He drafted civil rights legislation that became law in 1867 and assisted in abolishing the property clause in the Constitution that prevented many blacks from voting. William Henry Johnson crusaded for and won in 1891 a bill that ended discrimination against blacks in the insurance industry. After a career including the Underground Railroad, organizing volunteers for the Union Army, political and social activism, he put together an autobiography. A copy can be found in the Korean Room of the Albany Public Library and the New York State Library Archives. By the time of his death, he was a grand master in the Masons and had been a delegate of a Republican convention with several newspapers, including the Albany Capitol, and produced his own biography. William Henry died in 1918. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, William H. Johnson. Salute. 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 Dude went to be a hairdresser. Ended up being in, in, in politics, you know. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And immediately got involved. You, in you, let it, you let it take you wherever it takes you. Yeah. So when, he immediately became involved in the Underground Railroad, which today would be the equivalent of you uh, immediately being involved in the Innocence Project. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, hey, I got to do something. Yeah. Let me join the Innocence Project. And uh, one of the yeah. things that ca- kind of struck me was where it said he assisted in abolishing the property clause in the Constitution that prevented many blacks from voting. Now, this is something that could, inter- you know, is in our interest because we're looking to take that 13th Amendment exception clause out. So I think I'll do a little research and find uh William H. Johnson did in order to change the Constitution. I think I had shared something. I, I had tagged you guys in it. It was last week sometime where um, they have what's called a constitutional convention because somebody, I can't recall, uh, was proposing an amendment uh, to the Constitution, but they have what's called constitutional conventions where these people, I'll try to dig up that information, and, but I remember tagging both of you in it. And, um, but you know, so we put out so much information, it gets buried really quickly. So I'll try to find that and send it to you, Max. Thanks, thanks. I, I think that was a, a good achievement. And again, you know, I'd like to see how he, uh, succeeded at that. So maybe it can be repeated in 2015. The other thing that kind of, uh, struck me as, as, uh, notable was where it said he, uh, one in 1891, a bill that ended discrimination against blacks in the insurance company. I bet you <laughs> that that didn't last long because we know that's happening right now. So I, it wasn't something that lasted up until today. Mm-hmm. There you have it, our abolitionist and profile. We are at the end of our program, and we thank you for tuning in and staying with us. 
uh, here at New Abolitionist Radio. I'm sure I speak for both my uh, co-hosts and uh, Scotty and Johanna when we say we appreciate you tuning in. We definitely do. Um, this is our final statements or our final uh, messages for the evening where we leave you with a few thoughts that you might consider before you come back again next week with friends and family. Mm-hmm. So which one of you brothers would like to be able to start tonight? I'll start it. Um, again, I want to shout out, uh, give a shout out to the people who participated in the demonstrations, uh, protesting the shareholder uh, meeting for the GEO group today. Um, I saw a, a, a lot of young people of all ages, people of all races, uh, I'm sure varying, uh, religious backgrounds, but I mean, it's just makes me feel good, man, to see these public demonstrations. And I saw, you know, I was going through the pictures and I saw more than one picture saying, you know, in slavery or this is slavery or prison slavery. And so that tells me, man, that the the abolitionist movement is growing, man, and that we're just not spitting in the wind when we come on this program on Wednesday nights or when we share information across social media or we call in to other radio programs when they talk about mass incarceration and we tell them it's slavery, you know. So I, you know, I, I was just really um, uh, moved to see all those people out there uh, protesting mm-hmm. against slavery, man. And, and I just hope that, you know, soon we can reach critical mass so we can bring it down. We can end this for real this time. Amen, Scotty. Honey? Right on, on. Beautiful. That is beautiful to see uh, more people coming in. So definitely shout out to the, uh, to the new abolitionists uh, out there on the front lines. Uh, uh, just for myself, I just like to uh, to uh, find us on social media. You know, our, our Facebook pages are open. Um, as we said at the top of the program, uh, Facebook made me go back to my government name because I haven't changed my name legally uh, as according to my personal faith <clears throat> practices. And Johanan is a name that was given to me by my personal teacher. Uh, shout out to Brother Yehuda Maccabee. Uh, um, few years ago so as i uh, began to become more and more active and more and more uh, outspoken i just got tired of people arguing with john coolidge so you know johanan was something that he was calling me and i was growing in the community under that name and i just felt like coming out with that name but i don't want to deal with facebook and so if they want to be against me and want to call themselves calling me out then i'm just gonna get worse (laughs) Did we lose Johanna? No, he's still on the line. <laughs> Johanna. Oh, yep, we just lost him, man. He said he was going to get worse. Silence is violence, so he just got violent on us. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I understand where he's coming from. Uh, I'm kind of, you know, before we before you wrap it up with your final comments, I wonder what that's all that's all about uh, with Facebook making people use their real Names. What do you care if somebody's using a pseudonym or, or alias or what? What business of, of yours? I mean, so what? You want to make sure people using their real names so you can report them to, you know, whoever you're spying for? Uh, that's what I feel like that's about, man. But you know what? Um, I ain't trying to hide 
ain't trying to run from them and everything that that I say on social media and on these airways I'll say to your face so how do you like that mm-hmm. yeah Facebook has got uh, going on right now I've many times considered leaving it uh, in any case I just want to remind our listeners that we are in the middle of a fundraiser and we do need your support so please give as much as you possibly go to uh, blacktalkradionetwork.com you'll be able to find a link there where you can make a donation or even make a donation where you uh, dedicate a certain amount a month or a week or even a year we'll take whatever we can get we want to keep doing it and uh, we believe that the world needs what we're doing right here and we hope you agree with us so uh, please contribute and thank you very much now understanding what being enslaved means if you can walk out of your home Look at the sun anytime you feel like it. You are. Oh, <laughs> if you can walk out of your home and look at the sun and get slaved or a slave, although at any moment you may become one because nobody's safe. Slavery is not a nine to five job leading you like a carrot on a stick to work harder to pay for things that you think you can't live without. Slaves don't compete in open markets any more than horses bet on themselves in Vegas. Yes, the enslaved are under control economically, but only because they aren't allowed to own anything. That's part of the rules of slavery. Keep them penniless, in chains, hopeless, helpless, and ignorant. The slaves in the 1800s, having a book or a dollar in your hand would have gotten the same reaction. You aren't supposed to have either one. Slavery is waking up knowing someone owns your body and can beat, torture, or kill you on a whim. Slavery is not being able to see the light of day even if you want it to. Slavery has a stock exchange tag like GEO, CEC, or CCA. Slavery is when they kidnap you and then sell or lease you to someone else for profit without your input, where they work you like a mule for no pay and then tell you to be grateful for the food, shelter, and water struggling to buy bread for your starving family isn't slavery it's poverty and in our case almost always control poverty which creates a criminal and desperate breeding ground for future slaves real slavery includes real chains and real shackles anything else is a metaphor and remember that abolition is a reason for a revolution finally no peace 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 to the abolitionists. Death to the oppressors. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.